Hello, this is Angelique with the Gaston County Public Library. You are listening to the Book to the Library podcast, the audio recordings of the library's Book to the Library author talks. On September 16, 2017, inspirational author Beverly Lewis visited the library to discuss her best-selling book, The Shunning, and her then-recently released book, The Proving. Bev, tell us about why you wrote The Shunning and what you had in mind for it when you wrote it. Did all of you know that this is the 20th anniversary year for The Shunning's publication in 1997? How many of you read the story The Shunning? How many read the, the two sequels that follow it? How many have seen the Hallmark movie, The Shunning and its sequels? <laughs> I say that to you because this was a story that was never really intended to be read by anyone but my family. I wrote it based <clears throat> on the stories that I heard as a little girl from my mother and her sisters about my courageous grandmother, Ada. Ada was a young woman who was about 18. She was in the old Mennonite community, horse and buggy, and she was being suddenly being courted by a ministerial student named Omar Buckwalder, whom her father um, stopped some of the love letters and the postcards that he was sending to her from Nyack Bible Institute in New York. Her father thought that she was well-suited for the Mennonite farmer down the road, and her bishop thought so too. So they were not very happy. In fact, they were very opposed to Omar courting Ada. I paid close attention to my mother and her many sisters at family gatherings and in the kitchen when they were baking or uh, cleaning up, writing up the kitchen and um, hearing about all the strife and difficulties that Ada went through to follow her heart. She felt that this was the man for her. She married him against everyone's wishes. She was excommunicated eventually and then shunned. Her bishop told her if she was ever to be so brazen as to wear the simple gold wedding band that Omar was going to place on her finger on her wedding day, that she should never return to the community. And her father told her never to darken the door of their home. It was a heartbreaking story, but yet Ada got her love. She got Omar, and she had nine children. My mother is number eight of nine, and Ada... Just she basically transformed the whole side of her family tree because she made this courageous step away from a very strict, strictured, severe community. She was a free thinker like a lot of my characters are. <laughs> so I think um, a lot of my grandmother is in the stories that I tell. Because when you get a lineup of a young plain girls, it seems like there's always one with her arm like this. <laughs> So that was Ada, and she was very brave. I would say she was courageous and determined, determined to have the love of her life. And so I'm here today, I believe, because of Ada's influence on my life and hearing about her. I knew her until I was six when she passed away, and I had a close relationship with her at the time as a little girl. She would tell me things about life and things that she learned. And she would always say, be kind, be patient. It's important that we're kind to one another. 
that we're here to make a difference. And so when I began writing stories about the Amish, we lived across the lane from a lot of Amish in that community where we lived in Neffsville, Lancaster County. I thought I would just make notes about the children, the Amish children that my sister and I played with. Because you know when you're young, your heart's wide open. You don't see the differences at all, ever. It's as we grow older, which is sad to say, we learn to maybe not accept as much. We learn to not be as um, open-hearted anymore. We want to just be with our own people, our own group. And so I learned so much from the Amish children and from their parents. My father was a minister, and some of the uh, younger newlywed couples in the Amish community found out that my dad could read the Greek New Testament. And they thought, wow, let's invite them over for dinner. <laughs> and so my father and the Amish father would be in one corner with the German Bible and the King James and the Greek New Testament, and they would be talking about Christ's teachings. And my mother and the Amish mother would be over in another corner, and I would overhear some of what they were sh sharing. I remember one time my ears perked right up when the Amish mother, Mrs. Dulsfu, said, you know, Jane, she said, the more children you have, the less work you have to do. <laughs> and my mother's eyes kind of brightened. But she had two children. It looked like she wasn't going to be having more. My little sister was seven and a half by then, and I was nine. And um, we were just very captivated, especially when mealtime came around. The Amish mother would just kind of lift her one eyebrow to her daughters, and they would quietly excuse themselves and go out and make what I would say was a feast, like a five or six course meal. I couldn't figure out how they could cook so fast. <laughs> then later I found out that they had a cold cellar filled with a thousand jars of already canned goods, chow chow and pickled beets and red beet eggs. And if you've read my books, you know what I'm talking about. And if you've gone to Lancaster County, which some of you have, you also probably have enjoyed some of these wonderful foods. So the shunning was based on my grandmother's experience, and I wrote it for my family. I was going to pass it out at the next family reunion. My husband, being the very close uh, consultant that he was and still is, my first editor, he said, I know that you're working on your contracted books during the afternoon and the early evening, but you're staying up really late at night writing something else, aren't you? And I said, yes. And he said, well, are you ready to show it to me? And I said, no. <laughs> he said, why? And I said, because it's so tender to my heart. I want to get it all out on the page, make sure what's in my head and my heart is on the page before I let you read it. So he said, fine, whatever. A few weeks later, I told Dave, the story's finished. And he said, all right, I will read it. I said, don't tell me if it's terrible. Just, <laughs> just tell me, you know, good things. I can't handle that. It was a few days later, and if you've read some of Dave's novels, you know that he's rather academic. He's written some books with me. I would call him kind of a cerebral sort of man. And so he's not easily, what would you say, uh, he doesn't cry easily. So he came out of the, my office, and he had big tears rolling down his face. And I said, it's that bad. <laughs> and he said, 
No, he said, this isn't a story just for the family. This is a story for everyone. And I got goose pimples, I guess you would say, and I said, why? And he said, because Katie experiences something that we all can relate to. We've all been rejected on some level. We've all been wronged. Maybe some of us have been betrayed. And we've all maybe felt shunned at some point in our life. And he said, I think we need a publisher for this. And I said, oh, no. He said, yes, I think we do. So we committed it to prayer, and we then began to send it out to, to three different publishers. At the time, I was working with Bethany House publishers, writing lots and lots of children's stories and books for preteen girls, the Holly's Heart series. I had actually started my first ever Amish-related series. Some of you have read it. It's for older teen girls called The Summer Hill Secrets, which was set very close to where I grew up. And so now you know the uh, sort of insider glimpse on that, and you know what happened. The book is the most popular book that I've written so far. And of course, the movies had come along too, which I never expected. I was terrified at the thought of it. I hoped that Hollywood wouldn't change Katie's story too much. But I was pleased with the ending, so that was how it all came about. It's great. Yeah. Um, so to tell us, tell us a little bit about your writing process. What does it look like when you start a story? What comes first in the process of writing a new novel? Well, my stories aren't plot heavy. They're character driven, and I love to write looking out through the eyes of an Amish young woman walking in her bare feet, so to speak. I become the character in a way. I know so much about her by the time it's time to write her, her story. I uh, know all of her favorite things, her favorite foods to bake, her favorite flavor of ice cream, what day she's born, what time of day, where she falls in the birth order of her brothers and sisters. And usually the leading lady comes to me like two books before I can have the opportunity to write her story. So I'm busy writing my contract is a book at the time, and I have to keep saying, no, it's not your turn yet. <laughs> and I write notes about her. And so by the time the book that I finished and the next one's outlined, I usually kind of know what the character wants most in life. I know her passion. I know her desires. I know what she um, is going to face that's going to block her from getting what she wants. Um, and I know then the larger the plot setting, I know that it's probably going to be one of the back roads that I've loved as a child growing up in Lancaster County. So then it's time to write that story. So it's always been that way. It's always a young woman. You know, if you've read my books, that the first person prologue really launches you. And usually in the first sentence, I try to grab you and I say, Hang on, don't, you know, don't put the book down. I work hard at that. Um, a lot of husbands tell me on tour, um, I know that every September and every April, I'm not going to have, for about two or three days, I'm not going to have hot, nice hot dinners. I'm not going to have my laundry done. And, um, <laughs> and, but they always say then, I'm so happy for my wife because she adores your books and it makes her very happy to know that your books are coming out those times of year. So I'm, I'm happy to 
to go without a clean shirt or iron shirt, iron my own shirt, whatever. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's always the first, it's always the character, and then the story comes to me. And usually it has something to do with what's going on in the Amish community at that time. I subscribe to the Lancaster online newspaper. You can all sign up for it too if you want to know what's going on there. And I do read the budget. How many subscribe to the budget? Anyone? The budget is a periodical for Amish and Mennonites. It's published in Sugar Creek, Ohio. And um, it comes out every week. So my stack of the budget is now this high. And my husband says, I thought we were trying to pare down our house. <laughs> so um, I, I pick and choose the papers that I want to save forever because it, you see the scribes, the Amish uh, journal, journalists, they write about what's going on in their community every week. So you know who's being engaged, who's getting married, you know who fell through the horse's stable and lived and survived, you know how many people were preaching and who was sick, but they think they were faking it, that sort of stuff. <laughs> it's very interesting, very interesting. So I get a lot, a lot of ideas from papers as well as uh, from my many Amish friends too. They're all saying, I think you should write my story now. You could fictionalize it. I'm like everything is fictionalized. <laughs> so what is your favorite and least favorite part about being an author? Well, you know why the word dead is in deadline? <laughs> That's my least favorite. Um, I want to always be diligent about making my deadlines and I have a personal deadline sheet, which is more strict than even my editor's deadline because I know if I can make it to the first deadline and I have like a third of the book done and then to the second deadline and the half middle, the middle of the book and so forth, <clears throat> then I need time to polish it, go back and revise if I need to, that I will make the deadline that are in my contracts that I agree to. So the deadline is always hard because I'm such a, what would you say, a rewriter. I always go back and think, well, I'm, this needs to be expanded more, or this could be better. I know my readers, and I know what they want, and so I want to make it good for you. I want to make it as polished as I can. So um, the happiest, the uh, most lovely thing about uh, being an author, and I never thought I would say this because as a shy writer at the age of nine when I began writing, I was hiding my stories. But the joy of now, I've gotten over all that, <laughs> the joy of knowing that a new book is out comes to me because so many of you say, my stories lift your heart. You feel better at the end than when you began. Um, you have a way of glimpsing into a misunderstood people group and you're learning something new, each book hopefully. You're also, you have the option of a wholesome alternative to, to fiction. You have a choice and you're reading my books and you're feeling better at the end. That's great. You're also going along the ride of a Bev Lewis book with twists and turns and I hope that you cry and you laugh in all the places that I did when I'm writing. So that's part of the joy. And the other part, of course, is leaving my quiet office and coming out and meeting all of you. Because I do love to hear your stories too. I love to hear how my uh, books have made a difference in your life. That's great. Yeah. So you mentioned people learning something new when they read your book. So with the proving, 
Is there a particular aspect of Amish life or something that you haven't included before that people will be learning about as they read this book? Well, the food at breakfast at a B&B that's an Amish-run B&B is quite remarkable. So I interviewed three Amish innkeepers and they all wrote down their menus. And they rotate them because a lot of their guests are regulars and they come every fall, they come every summer, they usually come at the same week every year and they book way ahead. And so, of course, if you're staying for five days, you don't want to eat the same thing every day. <laughs> so I um, wanted it to be as authentic as possible. For those of you who haven't had the privilege of staying at, in a Mennonite or Amish in, in Lancaster County. I also wanted to uh, describe the process of grieving in the Amish community. There will be 550 to 750 people at even an elderly person's funeral. Everyone comes from all over the country, actually. Uh, in Lancaster County, I know that there are many who come in from Ohio, Indiana, upstate New York, Wisconsin, uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, Florida. You know where the um, Amish retirement community is in, in Sarasota, just a little south of there. It's called Pinecraft. If you're ever in that area, you should just go drive up and down the, the, the area. It's just a small community and little bungalows. They all have electricity there. Mm -hmm. They uh, wonder if they want to retire earlier because of that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but they have said that, you know, what the uh, bishop back home doesn't know is not going to hurt him. <laughs> <laughs> but um, at an Amish funeral, you wouldn't hear anyone sobbing, but you would see silent tears. Their grief is more inward because they're trusting that this is God's will for that person to have passed away. And this, they've told me many times, the sovereignty of God brings peace to the lives. They don't have to shake their fist at heaven and say, why, and be so angry. Some of us do when, we're, when bad things happen to us. We want to know why, we question. But the Amish have been taught, since they were very small, to know that what befalls them is God's will, and that over time, they may not understand at the time the sorrow and the sadness and the difficulty, but over the years, they'll be able to look back and say, something good came out of that. Um, there's another aspect of this book that I wanted to incorporate that I've never done before. And that is Mandy, the young woman on the cover of this book. Her mother has, is, has passed away, and her mother was known to be someone who would linger at the breakfast table. She would come in after she served everyone this lavish, large, wonderful breakfast, and she would bring her tea or her coffee, and she would sit down at the table with the people there, and she would listen to them. What a concept in this world. Does anyone really listen to you anymore? So many people finish our sentences for us and they think they know what we're going to say and they're thinking ahead to what they want to say before we're done. You know what I'm saying? But Saloma, Mandy's mother, it has this down to an art form. Her heart is for her guests. And that's mainly why she's doing it also to earn money as a widow. Mandy has actually um, not lived in the Amish community for five years. Her very beloved sister, Ari Mae, twin sister,
betrayed her five years ago, and she's still getting over it, but she couldn't stay anymore. She's, she's been living like you and me. We're, she's been Englishers for five years. And when she gets the call or the letter from her older bro brother and says that the inn is to be for you, you are to be the heir of this Amish B&B, but there are stipulations. You must come back for 12 consecutive months and run it as an authentic B&B under the scrutiny of the ministers and also you will be confronted by your sister. You'll have to work with her. Well, it's, she's pondering a lot. She's not sure she wants to take this on. And so one of the things that she has to decide if she's going to emulate or not her mother's kind-hearted listening ability, Mandy's kind, but she's also hurt. She's still wounded from what Ari May did to her. So she's going. is she going to fake it, be a dress Amish and be a good Amish listener and serve all the types of food that her mother made? Well, she's not a very good cook, so that's a problem. <laughs> Ari May is the cook, a very amazing cook. That she got her mother's cooking ability. So those are the three big uh, aspects to this book that I've been wanting to include um, for you because a lot of you uh, always want fresh new stories. I try not to ever duplicate anything except the last names, of course. <laughs> always the same, different ones. But mm -hmm. that's great, yeah. and that's a great teaser for the proving. So, mm -hmm. um, looking for for all of you who haven't had a chance to read it yet. I'm sure it'll be a lot of fun once you get your book signed. So I think we have time for one more. Um, a question I hear a lot is, do any Amish people read your books, and if so, what do they think? Um, I have a drawer now a large file drawer just of Amish letters, of uh, over a thousand letters from Amish women all over the U.S. And so yes, they not only read my books, but they write to me to ask me, usually on the first line, how do you know so much about us? <laughs> Other women have written to say, I have been shunned five times. I have a free spirit and how would you handle things if you were born into the Amish community with thoughts of your own and opinions, and you're a woman? Others have said, I love being Amish. I wouldn't trade it for the world. I'm born with a submissive heart. I love raising 15 children. I know one family who have 22 biological children, lots of sets of twins, and one set of triplets. But remember, the more you have, the less work you have to do. <laughs> yeah, that's what they say. They delegate power. So once your oldest daughter is seven or eight, she's going to be helping with the little ones. And um, so a lot of times I've gotten letters from Amish who recite various passages in the Bible about shunning. They want me to know that this is an okay thing to do. It's not something that they view as harsh. They view it as an act of love because they want the wayward one to come back and repent and to come and join the people again. They don't want them to wander out to the world among all of us. They want to keep their people in the community where they were born. And so 
I don't know if after reading the shunning, a lot of the Amish women, well, I don't have a lot of letters like that, but some said, you know it's scriptural to be shunned. You're not to eat with someone and have fellowship with someone who is saying that they're a believer and they're acting differently, etc. But they do take it a little farther in that if your daughter has a baby, a new baby, and you're the grandma and you're shunned, you can't take that baby directly from your daughter's arms to yours. She would put the baby down in the cradle first. Mm -hmm. Same thing with passing money. At the general store, you cannot give your money and hand it to the, to the general store manager, the owner. He would want you to put your money down on the table and then he would accept it. After a period of time, if you haven't repented, he wouldn't want your money at all. And he wouldn't want you to come to his store anymore. And if you had a business that relied on the people, the Amish community there, pretty soon your business would dry up. This is an act of love to bring you back to where you should be. That's what they tell me, and that is exactly why they do it. There are uh, shunnings that are harsher, some that are harsher uh, than others. But anyway, yes, they do read them. Some of the Indiana Amish women have said, I'm reading your books under the covers literally with a flashlight. I'm not supposed to be reading anything but the Bible or a devotional book. And I know that fiction is just a bunch of made up lies, but I love your stories and I'm gaining, I'm learning things. For one thing, they uh, like to read the books I write because they want to know what we think about them. Isn't that interesting? When I go to visit my Amish friends, they always say, don't paint us too perfect, Beverly, because we certainly ain't. We're just like you. We struggle with the same difficulties. Our young people run around and sometimes they give us, you know, white hair and our hair, we're pulling it out. And sometimes some of us struggle with our businesses and our, do we have enough money to make ends meet? And we struggle with some of our siblings. They're not as sweet as some of yours in your book. <laughs> but um, so they're, they're human just like us. It's mm -hmm. wonderful. So thank you so much, Bev, for answering all these questions. You're welcome. And thank you all for being here today. Thank you so much. Enjoyed it. Thank you. This has been the Book to the Library podcast featuring Beverly Lewis.